0: Welcome everyone to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, two great Lovecraft stories. The Terrible Old Man and Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Written on January 28, 1920 and originally published in Tryout Magazine in 1921, The Terrible Old Man is of particular interest to fans of H.P. Lovecraft because it marks the introduction of Lovecraft's fictional geography setting his work for the first time in the fictional new england town of kingsport today's first story the terrible old man by h.p lovecraft it was the design of angelo ricci and joe zanick and Manuel silva to call on the terrible old man this old man dwells all alone in a very ancient house on water street near the sea and is reputed to be both exceedingly rich and exceedingly feeble, which forms a situation very attractive to men of the profession of masters Ricci, Zanuck, and Silva, for that profession was nothing less dignified than robbery. The inhabitants of Kingsport say and think many things about the terrible old man, which generally keep him safe from the attention of gentlemen like Mr. Ricci and his colleagues, despite the almost certain fact that he hides a fortune of indefinite magnitude somewhere about his musty and venerable abode. He is, in truth, a very strange person, believed to have been a captain of East India clipper ships in his day, so old that no one can remember when he was young, and so taciturn that few know his real name. Among the gnarled trees in the front yard of his aged and neglected place, he maintains a strange collection of large stones, oddly grouped and painted so that they resemble the idols in some obscure eastern temple. This collection frightens away most of the small boys who love to taunt the terrible old man about his long white hair and beard, or to break the small paned windows of his dwelling with wicked missiles. "'but there are other things which frighten the older and more curious folk "'who sometimes steal up to the house to peer into the dusty panes. "'These folks say that on a table in a bare room on the ground floor "'are many peculiar bottles, "'in each a small piece of lead suspended pendulum-wise from a string. "'And they say that the terrible old man talks to these bottles, "'addressing them by such names as Jack, Scarface, Long Tom, Spanish Joe, Peters, and Mate Ellis, and that whenever he speaks to a bottle, the little lead pendulum within makes a certain definite vibration, as if in answer. Those who have watched the tall, lean, terrible old man in these peculiar conversations do not watch him again. But Angelo Ricci and Joe Zanuck and Manuel Silva "'were not of Kingsport blood. "'They were of that new "'and heterogeneous alien stock "'which lies outside the charmed circle "'of New England life and traditions. "'And they saw in the terrible old man "'merely a tottering, "'almost helpless greybeard "'who could not walk without the aid "'of his knotted cane, "'and whose thin, weak hands "'shook pitifully. "'They were really quite sorry "'in their way for the lonely, "'unpopular old fellow,' whom everybody shunned, and at whom all the dogs barked, singularly. But business is business, and to a robber whose soul is in his profession, there is a lure and a challenge about a very old and very feeble man who has no account at the bank, and who pays for his few necessities at the village store with Spanish gold and silver, minted two centuries ago. Masters Ricci, Zanik, and Silva "'selected the night of April 11th "'for their call. "'Mr. Ricci and Mr. Silva "'were to interview the poor old gentleman "'whilst Mr. Zanuck waited for them "'and their presumable metallic burden "'with a covered motor-car "'on Ship Street, "'by the gate and the tall rear wall "'of their host's grounds. "'Desire to avoid needless "'explanations in case of "'unexpected police intrusions "'prompted these plans for a quiet "'and unostatious departure.' As prearranged, the three adventurers started out separately in order to prevent any evil-minded suspicions afterward. Masters Ricci and Silva met in Water Street by the old man's front gate, and although they did not like the way the moon shone down upon the painted stones through the budding branches of the gnarled trees, they had more important things to think about than mere idle superstition. They feared it might be unpleasant work, "'making the terrible old man loquacious "'concerning his hoarded gold and silver. "'For aged sea-captains are notably stubborn and perverse. "'Still, he was very old and very feeble, "'and there were two visitors. "'Masters Ricci and Silva were experienced "'in the art of making unwilling persons voluble. "'And the screams of a weak and exceptionally venerable man "'can be easily muffled.' so they moved up to the one-lighted window and heard the terrible old man talking childishly to his bottles with pendulums. Then they donned masks and knocked politely at the weather-stained oaken door. Waiting seemed very long to Mr. Zanuck as he fidgeted restlessly in the covered motor-car by the terrible old man's back gate in Ship Street. He was more than ordinarily tender-hearted, and he did not like the hideous screams he had heard in the ancient house just after the hour appointed for the deed. Had he not told his colleagues to be as gentle as possible with the pathetic old sea captain? Very nervously he watched that narrow oaken gate in the high and ivy-clad stone wall. Frequently he consulted his watch and wondered at the delay. Had the old man died before revealing where his treasure was hidden? and had a thorough search become necessary? Mr. Zanuck did not like to wait so long in the dark in such a place. Then he sensed a soft tread, or tapping, on the walk inside the gate, heard a gentle fumbling at the rusty latch, and saw the narrow, heavy door swing inward. And in the pallid glow of the single dim street lamp, he strained his eyes to see what his colleagues had brought out of that sinister house "'which loomed so close behind. "'But when he looked, "'he did not see what he had expected, "'for his colleagues were not there at all, "'but only the terrible old man "'leaning quietly on his knotted cane "'and smiling hideously. "'Mr. Zanuck had never before noticed "'the color of that man's eyes, "'and now he saw that they were yellow.' Little things make considerable excitement in little towns, which is the reason the Kingsport people talked all that spring and summer about the three unidentifiable bodies, horribly slashed, as with many cutlasses, and horribly mangled, as by the tread of many cruel boot heels, which the tide washed in. And some people even spoke of things as trivial as the deserted motor-car found in Ship Street, or certain especially inhuman cries, probably of a stray animal or migratory bird, heard in the night by wakeful citizens. But in this idle village gossip, the terrible old man took no interest at all. He was by nature reserved, and when one is aged and feeble, one's reserve is doubly strong. Besides, so ancient a sea captain must have witnessed scores of things much more stirring in the far-off days ...of his unremembered youth. Our second story, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, by H.P. Lovecraft. I've often wondered if the majority of mankind ever pause to reflect upon the occasionally titanic significance of dreams... ...and of the obscure world to which they belong. Whilst the greater number of our nocturnal visions are perhaps no more than faint and fantastic reflections of our waking experiences... Freud, to the contrary, with his puerile symbolism, there is still a certain remainder whose immundane and ethereal character permit of no ordinary interpretation, and whose vaguely exciting and disquieting effect suggests possible minute glimpses into a sphere of mental existence no less important than physical life, and yet separated from that life by an all but impassable barrier. From my experience, I cannot doubt but that man, when lost to terrestrial consciousness, is indeed sojourning in another and uncorporeal life of far different nature from the life we know, and of which only the slightest and most indistinct memories linger after waking. From those blurred and fragmentary memories we may infer much, yet prove little. We may guess that in dreams, life, matter, and vitality as the earth knows such things, are not necessarily constant, and that time and space do not exist as our waking selves comprehend them. Sometimes I believe that this less material life is our truer life, and that our vain presence on the terraqueous globe is itself the secondary or merely virtual phenomenon. "'It was from a youthful reverie "'filled with speculations of this sort "'that I arose one afternoon "'in the winter of 1900, 1901, "'when to the state psychopathic institution "'in which I served as an intern "'was brought the man whose case "'has ever since haunted me so unceasingly. "'His name, as given on the records, "'was Joe Slater, "'and his appearance was that of a typical denizen "'of the Catskill Mountain region, "'one of those strange, repellent scions of a primitive colonial peasant stock whose isolation for nearly three centuries in the hilly fastnesses of a little-traveled countryside has caused them to sink to a kind of barbaric degeneracy, rather than advance with their more fortunately placed brethren of the thickly settled districts. Among these odd folk who correspond exactly to the decadent element of white trash in the South, law and morals are non-existent and their general mental status is probably below that of any other section of Native American people. Joe Slater, who came to the institution in the vigilant custody of four state policemen, and who is described as a highly dangerous character, certainly presented no evidence of his perilous disposition when I first beheld him. Though well above the middle stature, and of somewhat brawny frame, he was given an absurd appearance of harmless stupidity by the pale, Sleepy blueness of his small, watery eyes, the scantiness of his neglected and never shaven growth of yellow beard, and the listless drooping of his heavy, nether lip. His age was unknown, since among his kind neither family records nor permanent family ties exist. But from the baldness of his head in front, and from the decayed condition of his teeth, the head surgeon wrote him down as a man of about forty. From the medical and court documents, we learned all that could be gathered of his case. This man, a vagabond, hunter, and trapper, had always been strange in the eyes of his primitive associates. He had habitually slept at night beyond the ordinary time, and upon waking, would often talk of unknown things in a manner so bizarre as to inspire fear even in the hearts of an unimaginative populace. Not that his form of language was at all unusual for he never spoke, save in the debased petals of his environment. But the tone and tenor of his utterances were of such mysterious wildness, that none might listen without apprehension. He himself was generally as terrified and baffled as his auditors, and within an hour after awakening would forget all that he had said, or at least all that had caused him to say what he did, relapsing into a bovine Hall amiable normality like that of the other hill dwellers. As Slater grew older, it appeared, his matutinal aberrations had gradually increased in frequency and violence. Till about a month before his arrival at the institution had occurred the shocking tragedy which caused his arrest by the authorities. One day, near noon, after a profound sleep begun in a whiskey debauch at about five of the previous afternoon, The man had roused himself most suddenly, with ululations so horrible and unearthly that they brought several neighbors to his cabin, which was a filthy sty where he dwelt with a family as indescribable as himself. Rushing out into the snow, he had flung his arms aloft and commenced a series of leaps directly upward in the air, all the while shouting his determination to reach some big, big cabin with brightness in the roof and walls and floor, and the loud queer music far away. As two men of moderate size sought to restrain him, he had struggled with maniacal force and fury, screaming of his desire and need to find and kill a certain, what he called, thing that shines and shakes and laughs. At length, after temporarily felling one of his detainers with a sudden blow, he had flung himself upon the other in a demoniac ecstasy of bloodthirstiness, shrieking fiendishly that he would jump high in the air and burn his way through anything that stopped him. Family and neighbors had now fled in a panic, and when the more courageous of them returned, Slater was gone, leaving behind an unrecognizable pulp-like thing that had been a living man but an hour before. None of the mountaineers had dared to pursue him, And it is likely that they would have welcomed his death from the cold. But when several mornings later they heard his screams from a distant ravine, they realized that he had somehow managed to survive, and that his removal in one way or another would now be necessary. Then had followed an armed searching party, whose purpose, whatever it may have been originally, became that of a sheriff's posse after one of the seldom popular state troopers had by accident observed, then questioned, and finally joined the seekers. On the third day, Slater was found unconscious in the hollow of a tree, and taken to the nearest jail, where alienists from Albany examined him as soon as his senses returned. To them, he told a simple story. He had, he said, gone to sleep one afternoon about sundown after drinking much liquor he had awakened to find himself standing bloody-handed in the snow before his cabin, the mangled corpse of his neighbor, Peter Slater, at his feet. Horrified, he had taken to the woods in a vague effort to escape from the scene of what must have been his crime. Beyond these things, he seemed to know nothing, nor could the expert questioning of his interrogators bring out a single additional fact. That night Slater slept quietly— and the next morning he awakened with no singular feature save a certain alteration of expression. Dr. Barnard, who had been watching the patient, thought he noticed in the pale blue eyes a certain gleam of peculiar quality, and in the flaccid lips an all but imperceptible tightening, as of intelligent determination. But when questioned, Slater relapsed into the habitual vacancy of the mountaineer, and only reiterated what he had said on the preceding day. On the third morning occurred the first of the man's menial attacks. After some show of uneasiness in sleep, he burst forth into a frenzy so powerful that the combined efforts of four men were needed to bind him in a straitjacket. The alienists listened with keen attention to his words, since their curiosity had been aroused to a high pitch by the suggestive yet mostly conflicting and incoherent stories of his family and neighbors. Slater raved for upward of fifteen minutes, babbling in his backwoods dialect of green edifices of light, oceans of space, strange music, and shadowy mountains and valleys. But most of all did he dwell upon some mysterious, blazing entity that shook and laughed and mocked at him. This vast, vague personality seemed to have done him a terrible wrong. And to kill it in triumphant revenge... Was his paramount desire. In order to reach it, he said, he would soar through abysses of emptiness, burning every obstacle that stood in his way. Thus ran his discourse until, with the greatest suddenness, he ceased. The fire of madness died from his eyes, and in dull wonder, he looked at his questioners and asked why he was bound. Dr. Barnard unbuckled a leather harness. did not restore it till night when he succeeded in persuading Slater to don it of his own volition and for his own good. The man had now admitted that he sometimes talked queerly, but he did not know why. Within a week, two more attacks appeared, but from them the doctors learned little. On the source of Slater's visions, they speculated at length, for since he could neither read nor write, and had apparently never heard a legend or fairy tale, his gorgeous imagery was quite inexplicable. That it could not come from any known myth or romance was made especially clear by the fact that the unfortunate lunatic expressed himself only in his own simple manner. He raved of things he did not understand and could not interpret, things which he claimed to have experienced, but which he could not have learned through any normal or connected narration. The alienists soon agreed that abnormal dreams were the foundation of the trouble. Dreams whose vividness could for a time completely dominate the waking mind of this basically inferior man. With due formality, Slater was tried for murder, acquitted on the ground of insanity, and committed to the institution wherein I held so humble a post. I have said that I am a constant speculator concerning dream life, and from this you may judge of the eagerness with which I applied myself to the study of the new patient as soon as I had fully ascertained the facts of his case. He seemed to sense a certain friendliness in me, born no doubt of the interest I could not conceal, and the gentle manner in which I questioned him. Not that he ever recognized me during his attacks, when I hung breathlessly upon his chaotic, but cosmic word pictures. But he knew me in his quiet hours when he would sit by his barred window weaving baskets of straw and willow and perhaps pining for the mountain freedom he could never again enjoy. His family never called to see him. Probably it had found another temporary head after the manner of decadent mountain folk. By degrees I commenced to feel an overwhelming wonder at the mad and fantastic conceptions of Joe Slater. The man himself was pitiably inferior in mentality and language alike, but his glowing, titanic visions, though described in a barbarous, disjointed jargon, were assuredly things which only a superior or even exceptional brain could conceive. How, I often ask myself, could the stolid imagination of a Catskill degenerate conjure up sights whose very possession argued a lurking spark of genius? how could any backwoods dullard have gained so much as an idea of those glittering realms of supernal radiance in space about which Slater ranted in his furious deliriums? More and more I inclined to the belief that in the pitiful personality who cringed before me lay the disordered nucleus of something beyond my comprehension, something infinitely beyond the comprehension of my more experienced but less imaginative medical "'and scientific colleagues. "'And yet I could extract nothing definite from the man. "'The sum of all my investigation was "'that in a kind of semi-corporeal dream life "'Slater wandered, or floated, "'through resplendent and prodigious valleys, "'meadows, gardens, cities, and palaces of light, "'in a region unbounded and unknown to man.' that there he was no peasant or degenerate, but a creature of importance and vivid life, moving proudly and dominantly, and checked only by a certain deadly enemy, who seemed to be a being of visible yet ethereal structure, and who did not appear to be of human shape, since Slater never referred to it as a man, or as ought to save a thing this thing had done Slater some hideous but unnamed wrong, which the maniac, if maniac he were, yearned to avenge. From the manner in which Slater alluded to their dealings, I judge that he and the luminous thing had met on equal terms, that in his dream existence the man was himself a luminous thing of the same race as his enemy. This impression was sustained by his frequent references to flying through space and burning all that impeded his progress. Yet these conceptions were formulated in rustic words wholly inadequate to convey them, a circumstance which drove me to the conclusion that if a dream world indeed existed, oral language was not its medium for the transmission of thought. Could it be that the dream soul inhabiting this inferior body was desperately struggling to speak things which the simple and halting tongue of dullness could not utter. Could it be that I was face to face with intellectual emanations which would explain the mystery if I could but learn to discover and read them? I did not tell the older physicians of these things, for middle age is skeptical, cynical, and disinclined to accept new ideas. Besides, The head of the institution had but lately warned me in his paternal way that I was overworking, that my mind needed a rest. It had long been my belief that human thought consists basically of atomic or molecular motion, convertible into either waves or radiant energy like heat, light, and electricity. This belief had early led me to contemplate the possibility of telepathy or mental communication by means of suitable apparatus, and I had in my college days prepared a set of transmitting and receiving instruments somewhat similar to the cumbrous devices employed in wireless telegraphy at that crude, pre-radio period. These I had tested with a fellow student, but achieving no result had soon packed them away with other scientific odds and ends for possible future use. But now, in my intense desire to probe into the dream life of Joe Slater, I sought these instruments again and spent several days in repairing them for action. When they were complete, once more, I missed no opportunity for their trial. At each outburst of Slater's violence, I would fit the transmitter to his forehead and the receiver to my own, constantly making delicate adjustments for various hypothetical wavelengths of intellectual energy. I had but little notion of how the thought impressions would if successfully conveyed, arouse an intelligent response in my brain, but I felt certain that I could detect and interpret them. Accordingly, I continued my experiments, although informing no one of their nature. It was on the 21st of February, 1901, that the thing occurred. As I look back across the years, I realize how unreal it seems, and sometimes wonder, "'if old Dr. Fenton was not right "'when he charged it all to my excited imagination. "'I recall that he listened with great kindness and patience "'when I told him, "'but afterward gave me a nerve powder "'and arranged for the half-year's vacation "'on which I departed the following week. "'That fateful night I was wildly agitated and perturbed, "'for despite the excellent care he had received, Joe later was unmistakably dying.' Perhaps it was his mountain freedom that he missed, or perhaps the turmoil in his brain had grown too acute for his rather sluggish physique. But at all events, the flame of vitality flickered low in the decadent body. He was drowsy near the end, and as darkness fell, he dropped off into a troubled sleep. I did not strap on the straitjacket as was customary when he slept, since I saw that he was too feeble to be dangerous even if he woke in mental disorder once more before passing away. But I did place upon his head and mine the two ends of my cosmic radio, hoping against hope for a first and last message from the dream world in the brief time remaining. In the cell with us was one nurse, a mediocre fellow who did not understand the purpose of the apparatus or think to inquire into my course. As the hours wore on, I saw his head droop awkwardly in sleep, but I did not disturb him. I myself, lulled by the rhythmical breathing of the healthy and the dying man, must have nodded a little later. The sound of weird, lyric melody was what aroused me. Chords, vibrations, and harmonic ecstasies echoed passionately on every hand, while on my ravished sight burst the stupendous spectacle ultimate beauty. Walls, columns, and architraves of living fire blazed effulgently around the spot where I seemed to float in the air, extending upward to an infinitely high, vaulted magnificence, vaulted dome of indescribable splendor. Blending with this display of palatial magnificence, or rather, supplanting it at times in kaleidoscopic rotation, were glimpses of wide plains, and graceful valleys, high mountains, and inviting grottos, covered with every lovely attribute of scenery which my delighted eyes could conceive of, yet formed wholly of some glowing, ethereal, plastic entity, which in consistency partook as much of spirit as of matter. As I gazed, I perceived that my own brain held the key to these enchanting metamorphoses, for each vista which appeared to me was the one my changing mind most wished to behold. Amidst this Elysian realm I dwelt not as a stranger, for each sight and sound was familiar to me, just as it had been for uncounted eons of eternity before, and would be for like eternities to come. Then the resplendent aura of my brother of light drew near, and held colloquy with me, soul to soul, with silent and perfect interchange of thought. The hour was one of approaching triumph, for was not my fellow being escaping at last from a degrading periodic bondage? Escaping forever, and preparing to follow the accursed oppressor even unto the uttermost fields of ether, "'that upon it might be wrought a flaming cosmic vengeance "'which would shake the spheres. "'We floated thus for a little time, "'when I perceived a slight blurring and fading "'of the objects around us, "'as though some force were recalling me to earth, "'where I at least wished to go. "'The form near me seemed to feel a change also, "'for it gradually brought its discourse toward a conclusion, "'and itself prepared to quit the scene.' fading from my sight at a rate somewhat less rapid than that of the other objects. A few more thoughts were exchanged, and I knew that the luminous one and I were being recalled to bondage, though for my brother of light it would be the last time. The sorry planet shell being well nigh spent, in less than an hour my fellow would be free to pursue the oppressor along the Milky Way and past the hither stars to the very confines of infinity. A well-defined shock separates my final impression of the fading scene of light from my sudden and somewhat shame-faced awakening and straightening up in my chair as I saw the dying figure on the couch move hesitantly. Joe Slater was indeed awaking, though probably for the last time. As I looked more closely, I saw that in the sallow cheeks shone spots of color which had never before been present. THE LIPS, TOO, SEEMED UNUSUAL, BEING TIGHTLY COMPRESSED, AS IF BY THE FORCE OF A STRONGER CHARACTER THAN HAD BEEN SLATER'S. THE WHOLE FACE FINALLY BEGAN TO GROW TENSE, AND THE HEAD TURNED RESTLESSLY WITH CLOSED EYES. I DID NOT rouse THE SLEEPY NURSE, BUT READJUSTED THE SLIGHTLY DISARRANGED HEADBAND OF MY TELEPATHIC RADIO, INTENT TO CATCH ANY PARTING MESSAGE THE DREAMER MIGHT HAVE TO DELIVER. All at once the head turned sharply in my direction, and the eyes fell open, causing me to stare in blank amazement at what I beheld. The man who had been Joe Slater, the Catskill decadent, was gazing at me with a pair of luminous, expanding eyes, whose blues seemed subtly to have deepened. Neither mania nor degeneracy was visible in that gaze, and I felt beyond a doubt that I was viewing a face behind which lay an active mind of high order. At this juncture, my brain became aware of a steady external influence operating upon it. I closed my eyes to concentrate my thoughts more profoundly, and was rewarded by the positive knowledge that my long-sought mental message had come at last. Each transmitted idea formed rapidly in my mind, and though no actual language was employed, My habitual association of conception and expression was so great that I seemed to be receiving the message in ordinary English. "'Joel Slater is dead,' came the sole petrifying voice of an agency from beyond the wall of sleep. My opened eyes sought the couch in curious horror, but the blue eyes were still calmly gazing, and the countenance was
1: still intelligently animated." He is better dead, for he was unfit to bear the active intellect of cosmic entity. His gross body could not undergo the needed adjustments between ethereal life and planet life. He was too much an animal, too little a man. Yet it is through his deficiency that you have come to discover me, for the cosmic and planet souls rightly should never meet. He has been in my torment and diurnal prison for forty-two of your terrestrial years. I am an entity like that which you yourself become in the freedom of dreamless sleep. I am your brother of light, and have floated with you in the effulgent valleys. It is not permitted me to tell your waking earth self of your real self, but we are all roamers of vast spaces and travelers in many ages. Next year I may be dwelling in the Egypt, which you call ancient, or in the cruel empire of San-Chan, which is to come three thousand years hence. You and I have drifted to the worlds that reel about the red Arcturus, and dwell in the bodies of the insect philosophers that crawl proudly over the fourth moon of Jupiter. How little does the earth-self know life and its extent? How little, indeed, ought it to know for its own tranquillity! Of the oppressor I cannot speak. You on earth have unwittingly felt its distant presence. You who without knowing idly gave the blinking beacon the name of Algol, the demon star. It is to meet and conquer the oppressor that I have vainly striven for eons, held back by bodily encumbrances. Tonight, I go as a nemesis bearing just and blazingly cataclysmic vengeance. Watch me in the sky, close by the demon star. I cannot speak longer, for the body of Joe Slater grows cold and rigid, and the coarse brains are ceasing to vibrate as I wish. You have been my only friend on this planet, the only soul to sense and seek for me within the repellent form which lies on this couch we shall meet again. Perhaps in the shining mists of Orion's sword. Perhaps on a bleak plateau in prehistoric Asia. Perhaps in unremembered dreams tonight. Perhaps in some other form an aeon hence, when the solar system shall have been swept away."
0: At this point the thought waves abruptly seized the pale eyes of the dreamer—or, should I say, dead man. Commenced to glaze fishily. In a half stupor, I crossed over to the couch and felt of his wrist, but found it cold, stiff, and pulseless. The sallow cheeks paled again and the thick lips fell open, disclosing the repulsively rotten fangs of the degenerate Joe Slater. I shivered, pulled a blanket over the hideous face, and awakened the nurse. Then I left the cell. "'and went silently to my room. "'I had an instant "'and unaccountable craving "'for a sleep "'whose dreams "'I should not remember. "'The climax? "'What plain tale of science "'can boast of such "'a rhetorical effect? "'I have merely set down "'certain things appealing "'to me as fact, "'allowing you to construe them "'as you will. "'As I have already admitted, "'my superior, "'old Dr. Fenton,' "'denies the reality of everything I have related. "'He vows that I was broken down with nervous strain "'and badly in need of a long vacation on full pay, "'which he so generously gave me. "'He assures me on his professional honor "'that Joe Slater was but a low-grade paranoiac, "'whose fantastic notions must have come "'from the crude, hereditary folk tales "'which circulated even in the most decadent of communities. "'All this, he tells me, yet I cannot forget what I saw in the sky on the night after Slater died. Lest you think me a biased witness, another pen must add this final testimony, which may perhaps supply the climax you expect. I will quote the following account of the star Nova Purcell verbatim from the pages of that eminent astronomical authority, Professor Garrett P. Service. Quote, On February 22nd, 1901. A marvellous new star was discovered by Dr. Anderson of Edinburgh, not very far from Algol. No star had been visible at that point before. Within twenty-four hours, the stranger had become so bright that it outshone Capella. In a week or two, it had visibly faded, and in the course of a few months, was hardly discernible with the naked eye. Thanks for joining us for some much-requested H.P. Lovecraft at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We're asking two very important things of you if you enjoy our show or shows here at 1001 Stories Network. And they are very important to me in terms of keeping 1001 going forward. Number one, we're asking that if you enjoy our 1001 Stories Network and want to see us move forward, to please take a moment and visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 1001storiesnetwork That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash 1001 Network, and pledge a few dollars a month, less than a cup of blended coffee, to help us cover expenses here. Our Patreon supporters are appreciated very much. And number two, Please tell a friend about us and help or encourage them to subscribe to our shows. Our 1001 network shows have a therapeutic effect. Many people today are experiencing stressful lives and our 1001 shows offer a chance to elevate the mind, to escape from the sometimes harmful effects of TV, and become more literate and informed. I have no doubt that we entertain some of the most educated and well-balanced people in the world, judging from your reviews. All we ask is that you tell others about us. And sending us reviews at Apple is also a great way to tell others. And that includes Stitcher.com. They also take reviews at Android. Thanks to all of you who take the time to do that. And here are some recent reviews. The first one, five stars. What a great podcast. Classic short stories presented in a clear and professional manner. That one from G-Man Brad, Apple Podcast, U.S., And this one, many an hour, five stars. John is a storyteller in the classic sense. This podcast has opened up a new world for my 12-year-old son. He was stuck reading modern children's books and gaming manuals, not interested in any older writings. John has helped me introduce him to a classic adventure and suspense. His current favorites are London and Lovecraft. We now enjoy all of the 1001 podcast and spend Sunday nights listening. Our version of the Disney programs I remember from my youth. Thank you, Dusty Roberts. That one, RR Rad, FG, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, great podcast, love these, makes my drive go much faster. That one from a busy mom, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, keep up with the classics, five stars thank you for being the audio of our classes classics my students appreciate your help with reading and listening to these stories that one from fineapple 77 apple podcast us and this one great job five stars thanks for opportunity to acquire the knowledge knowledge is power that one from roshan 221b apple podcast india and this one five stars thankful Thank you, Mr. Haggadorn, for doing all of your wonderful podcasts. As a teenager, I had developed bad habits, but your podcast brought me back to reality. I now love classical literature, and it is helping me get through a lot. Thank you so much. Sarah Clyde. Apple Podcast, U.S. Wonderful stories, five stars. As a lover of authors such as M.R. James and H.P. Lovecraft, I really enjoy listening to these readings. It makes the mandatory housework a welcome break from work and study. John, you do a wonderful job. Thanks. Now from PPOP67, Apple Podcast, Australia. And Pop, this was your HP Lovecraft, and there'll be more to come. Thank you so much, everyone, for sending us reviews, and we look forward to new ones. And also, please, share our show with a friend, and even help them to subscribe to Apple, or to Stitcher.com, or any of the other dozens of podcasts. that carry our 1001 shows. Thank you so much for listening. We love having you as fans. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time.